the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing and engineering today's program. We're going to share a conversation with Carrie Holt, whose book is out today. She's the co-author of The Other Side of Special. That's coming up Later this hour, we're also going to reflect back on the nine years since um, some of these girls were taken captive by Boko Haram. Well, we just learned that two of those girls, nine years later, have been returned. Uh, Also, Christians are among the dead in India, where churches in northeast uh, India, 50 of them were destroyed. That and more coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, a walkout by most Republicans in the Oregon Senate is delaying action on gun safety, abortion rights, abortion rights. I hate using that phrase, but there you have it. And gender affirming health care. Another phrase I dislike extended to a fifth day on Sunday. Now, you might remember a a ballot measure that passed measure 113. They have 10 days before they have the uh, Possibility of losing their position. Senate President Rob Wagner adjourned the body until Monday morning because a quorum could not be reached. The sergeant at arms had reported that unexcused members cannot be located. Therefore, there is no quorum for the Senate to conduct business. Well, on Thursday, Democratic Majority Leader Kate Lieber told the AP that walkout is about abortion, guns and right. And the the uh, transgender rights. This is about walking out on a bill on bills, rather, that are important to Oregonians. Well, to some Oregonians. Republican Minority Leader Tim Knope, he refused to confirm the pending legislation is the only factor keeping them from coming to work. Our goal is to educate the public and to bring this session back into legal conformity, and in this case, not passing or trying to pass unlawful and unconstitutional bills. Republicans have staged walkouts before, but this year, lawmakers with 10 unexcused absences are disqualified for re-election thanks to a new constitutional amendment overwhelmingly approved by voters in November. Now, many of the walkout participants are now at five absences. Members who were out Sunday, like uh, Senator Cedric Hayden, said Republicans want a balanced process where the voices of all Oregonians are heard. That's just simply not the case at the moment when Senate Democrats believe Measure 113 gives them the luxury of not having to negotiate with the other political parties represented in the Capitol. Lieber isn't having it, saying voters spoke very loudly when they passed ballot measure 113. So I fully expect that they will be back in the building and we will continue to do the work on the floor of the Senate. Well, the boycott comes as several state houses, including Montana and Tennessee, have become battlegrounds between conservatives and liberals. Oregon has increasingly been divided between liberal population centers like Portland and Eugene and its mostly conservative rural areas. The Senate will hold another roll call today, but again, 10 days before the uh, the new law kicks in. Meanwhile, yet another twist in the controversy surrounding Oregon Secretary of State Shamia Fagan and cannabis company LaMotta. Well, it's come to light. The Oregon Secretary Secretary of State's office confirmed 
that based on emails between Fagan and LaModa, CEO Rosa Cesaris, it appears as though Fagan shared her draft of the audit plan on the cannabis industry with her other employer for feedback in January of 21, but not through her government email account. However, emails um, uh, coined uh, six news requested between the two um, uh, and that email account do show several recommended changes uh, made about the audit plan. To be clear, the audit plan isn't the audit, but rather the instructions from the secretary to the auditors about the title and scope of the audit they'll perform. Well, after the secretary approves her audit plan, the Oregon Audits Division independently conducts the actual audit. Well, the audit documents show the secretary included an updated summary and title of the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission audit on her audit plan, which included um, the recommended language from her other employer. The secretary's office uh, says that the agency staff or officials were aware that she had reached out for input uh, from LaMata. The final title of the audit, however, is much different uh, than what um, her other employer recommended and Fagan suggested to her staff. Staff, The SOS office says that's because they did their own independent interviews and research. The office states that even though they didn't know about Fagan's behind-the-scenes conversations with the cannabis company, they stand by their findings. The Audits Division conducted their work with high standards and professionalism, the Secretary of State's office, Ben Morris, said every conclusion, finding and recommendation in the audit is backed by evidence, end quote. When a press release on Friday, Oregon Audit Division Director Kip Mehmet, he echoed that sentiment, encouraging Oregonians to read the full audit and see for themselves. The Department of Energy proposed new appliance rules that would cut water and energy use limits for Americans' dishwashers well below current levels. The proposal would limit dishwashers to using 3.2 gallons of water per cycle, far below the current federal limit of 5 gallons. The rules would also require manufacturers to reduce their product's energy consumption by nearly 30 percent. It spells hand washing to me. Most dishwashers on the market are already well below the federal standard of 5 gallons, with most at 3.5 gallons per cycle or less. Dishwashers are not the only appliances that the Department of Energy under Biden has set its sights on. As the uh, regular um, use of um, other appliances, washers, dryers, refrigerators that manufacturers say could reduce performance, the Biden administration has made clear that the new limits are coming thanks to the president's climate agenda. Collectively, these energy efficiency actions support President Biden's ambitious clean energy agenda to combat the climate change, the climate crisis, as uh, they refer to it. The proposed rules come on the heels of a national reckoning over gas stoves. And while top Democrats like Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer argue there is nothing to worry about, nothing to see here. His own state banned gas stoves just last week. Nobody is taking away your gas stove, Schumer tweeted back in February. Shameless and desperate MAGA Republicans are showing us they will cook up Any distraction to divert from real issues the American people want solved, like the debt ceiling. Nevertheless, New York lawmakers agreed on a ban on gas stove hookups in all future buildings in late April. The ban will affect new construction on small buildings in 2025 and move on to larger buildings in 2028. On Saturday in Allen, Texas, a 33-year-old man opened fire on shoppers at an outlet shopping mall killing eight people and wounding several others. 
His attack was stopped when he was shot dead at the scene by law enforcement officer who happened to be there on an unrelated matter. The assailant was an Army veteran who worked as a security guard. It's being widely reported that he held neo-Nazi views and was wearing a patch that read RWDS, which is supposed to um, be an acronym for Right Wing Death Squad. Predictably, the president responded to the attack by blaming guns and Republicans. The fact of the matter is that neither Second Amendment supporters nor Republicans have ever or would ever condone such violence. Yet, President Unity was more than willing to push that um, disingenuous smear. Interestingly, uh, we've learned more than 24 hours, more rather in 24 hours, about the assailant's motives than the Nashville Covenant school murderer after more than a month. And it's not for a lack of information, as the transgender Nashville attacker left a yet-to-be-published manifesto, and she had told her friends it would be very clear from her writing what her motivation would have been. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt, a Republican, has strong words for critics after he vetoed a bill last week that would have funded operations of the state's PBS station, Oklahoma Education Television Authority, or OETA, through 2026, accusing the station of indoctrinating young children. OETA to us is an outdated system. The big, big question is, why are we spending taxpayer dollars to prop up or compete with the private sector and run television stations? And then when you go through all of the programming that's happening and the indoctrination and over-sexualization of our children, it's just really problematic and it doesn't line up with Oklahoma values. That's a quote from Governor Stitt. Unless the legislature is able to override his veto, the state PBS network will cease operations this year. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to work our way through some of the day's headlines. And coming up later this hour, Carrie Holt. She's the co-author of The Other Side of Special, the book uh, released today. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Law enforcement's use of artificial intelligence-driven facial recognition recognition puts everyone into what one expert called a perpetual police lineup. And studies show it's more likely the finger will be pointed at the wrong person if they're black or Asian. I happen to be black. Whenever they have a photo of a suspect, they will compare it to your face, says Matthew Guargiela from a nonprofit digital rights group, Electronic Frontier Foundation. He was speaking to the BBC. It's far too invasive. The technology's use in police investigations boomed in recent years, particularly after the uh, January 6th uh, event. 20 out of 42 federal agencies that were surveyed Uh, by the Government Accountability Office in 2021, reported they use facial recognition in criminal investigations. But the artificial intelligence algorithms in the technology falsely identified African-American and Asian faces 10 to 100 times more than white faces, according to a 2019 study by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Since then, several black men have been arrested for crimes they didn't commit. Another threat from AI? Says one uh, doctor, I escaped segregation as a doctor. Now medical schools are bringing it back. So writes Dr. Marilyn Singleton. My mother and father went to segregated schools, she writes, separated from whites because they were black. They told me as a child that they wanted better for me. 
They got their wish when I went to Stanford University and then the University of California at San Francisco's medical school, both fully integrated and welcoming. Before they passed away, they firmly believed that the era of separating people by race was over forever. My parents were wrong, she writes. Higher education is deliberately resegregating, uh, driven by race-obsessed activists who bizarrely claim to oppose systematic racism. Universities like Harvard and Chicago have held black-only graduation ceremonies in recent years. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas distanced himself from the border crisis on Sunday, saying the country's immigration system has been broken since the 90s and it's ultimately up to Congress to fix it. During an appearance on CBS News Face the Nation, Mayorkas dismissed a bipartisan bill introduced last week by Senator Tom Tillis and Senator Kirsten Sinema. I know I know it, it's just not clicking. Both a Republican and an Independent that would allow the U.S. to expel migrants for two years after Title 42 ends this week, this Thursday, to be more precise. There's a very important message not to communicate only to Senator Sinema, but to all senators and all members of the House of Representatives. We need immigration reform, he said. Everything that the Department of Homeland Security is doing, everything that our partners across the federal government are doing is within a broken immigration system. The president passed to Congress a proposal to fix our broken immigration system on the first day in office. CBS anchor Margaret Brennan pushed back in the interview, saying it doesn't appear the Democrats have made the border a priority. Title 42, a public health order that was implemented in March of 2020 in response to COVID-19, will expire on Thursday, sparking concerns that the U.S. is unprepared for the renewed surge of illegal immigration. The border is not open, Mayorkas said Friday in Brownsville, Texas, alongside Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz. It has not been open uh, and it will not be open subsequent to May 11th. And the smugglers who exploit vulnerable migrants are spreading misinformation. They're spreading false information, lies in a way to lure vulnerable people to the southern border. And those individuals will only be returned. Florida Republicans backing former President Trump for 2024 denounced the leak of a DeSantis debate tape or tapes, plural, two House Republicans who were involved with the Florida governor DeSantis debate prep during his 2018 campaign denounced Sunday's leak of debate prep videos and a pair of tweets. Representatives Byron Donalds, a Republican from Florida, and Matt Gates, also from Florida, who were already enthusiastically uh, in support of Donald Trump for president, said the leaked footage released by ABC News is an example of petty politics. The leaked tapes to ABC showed DeSantis questioning how to express his differences within President Trump without angering his base. A possible preview to the Florida governor's expected run for the presidency in 2024 against former President Trump. Arizona Independent Senator Kirsten Sinema, she attacked the White House on Sunday for doing nothing regarding the border crisis, despite having two years to plan for the Title 42 mandate to expire. The pandemic era policy, which originally allowed the U.S. to expel certain migrants as a health mandate, is set to expire on Thursday, as said earlier. Even with the policy in place, the administration has faced record levels of illegal border crossings since taking office in January of 21. Face the Nation host Margaret Brennan, she spoke to Cinema on a, the border crisis, as well as her proposed bill to continue a similar policy at the McCain Institute Sedona Forum. 
As the expiration date draws closer, however, Cinema began criticizing the White House for its inaction. What you introduced was a temporary two-year authority to expel migrants with an exemption for asylum claims because of the immediate Title 42 expiration, Brennan said. That's a Band-Aid, Cinema admitted. The, the Biden administration had two years to prepare for this and did not do so. Our state is going to bear the brunt. Migrants will be in crisis as soon as next week. It will be, and that was referring now to this week, it will be a humanitarian crisis because we are not prepared. The legislation we introduced yesterday is um, uh, ability tiding this um, over, giving us time and space for the Biden administration to do their job and for us legislators to create a plan to get through the House and Senate. Brennan remarked that the bill may not receive enough support from Senate from Congress to pass. Senator remained optimistic, though remarked that the Department of Homeland Security and the federal government has yet to share information with her or border towns regarding what to expect at the end of Title 42, which again ends on Thursday. A new poll on Biden's mental, physical health uh, offers warning signs for 2024. President Biden is facing significant headwinds at the start of his reelection campaign, with a vast majority of Americans saying he doesn't have the physical or mental capacity to serve another term. According to the new poll, an ABC News Washington Post poll released on Sunday, they found that 63 percent of American adults do not think Biden at 80 has the mental sharpness it takes to serve effectively as president, compared to only 32 percent who believe he does and 5 percent who have no opinion. The number shot up nine percentage points since the same poll was conducted a year ago when 54 percent said he didn't have the mental capacity for the job. The poll found that 62 percent of Americans do not think that the president is in good enough physical health to serve either, compared to 33 percent who believe that he is and 5 percent. No opinion. Respondents were asked the same question about former President Donald Trump, who's 76, uh, who is the uh, current frontrunner in the GOP presidential primary and leads Currently, uh, the current President Biden in the polls, 54 percent said he does have the mental sharpness compared to Biden's 32 percent. And 64 percent said he has the physical health to serve as president compared to Biden's 33 percent. The poll found that 26 percent of Americans believe only Biden is too old for the presidency compared to one percent who said the same for only Trump. However, 43 percent believe both men are too old for the office. Biden's job approval rating also hit a new low at 36 percent, down six points since the same poll was conducted in February, compared to 56 percent of respondents who disapproved of his performance so far. The majority of Americans also think Trump did a better job at handling the economy than Biden, with 54 percent supporting Trump's performance compared to only 36 percent who think Biden is doing a better job. The poll comes nearly two weeks after Biden announced in a video that he and Vice President Harris would seek re-election. Hollywood star Richard Dreyfuss, an Academy Award-winning actor best known for his role in Jaws, said in an interview that the new diversity rules imposed by the Oscars for films to be eligible for the Best Picture Award make me vomit. They make me vomit, he said, at uh, speaking to Margaret Hoover of Firing Line, which aired Friday night on PBS. This is an art form. No one should be telling me as an artist that I have to give in to the latest, most current idea of what morality is. 
The New York Times editorial board is calling for Senator Feinstein's resignation. We'll tell you more about that when we return from the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in our next segment, an interview with Carrie Holt, co-author of The Other Side of Special. The New York Times editorial board called on Senator Dianne Feinstein, the Democrat out of California, to resign from her position on Friday and demanded Senator Chuck Schumer increase public pressure on her to step down. If she cannot fulfill her obligations to the Senate and to her constituents, she should resign and turn over her responsibilities to an appointed successor. If she is unable to reach that decision on her own, Mr. Schumer, the majority leader, and other Democratic senators should make it clear to her and the public how important it is that she do so. That's a quote from the editors. Feinstein has been absent from the Senate chamber for more than two months due to health issues. In recent decades, the conversation surrounding abortion has primarily surrounded women, and as a result of societal expectations, men might be less likely to express their true feelings about an unplanned pregnancy or abortion. But research shows they have strong emotions regarding that choice. A national men's abortion study commissioned by Support After Abortion, a nonprofit focused on after-abortion healing research and education, found that the majority of men who experience abortion loss also experience some kind of negative impact on their lives, including depression, anxiety, and anger. But because of societal pressure, their voices have been stifled, and their grief is often disenfranchised. Nearly half of pregnancies in the U.S. each year are unintended, and about two in five of those unintended pregnancies end in abortion, according to a study conducted by the Guttmacher Institute. And while some men expressed relief as a result of an abortion, the majority, the majority experienced a negative impact on their life, with many left deeply impacted for years, the study found. By the way, the Pregnancy Resource Centers of the Portland metro area have a program for you. It's confidential. And it can help you work through those uh, issues. President Biden's approval rating has reached its lowest level since his presidency. And El Paso is in crisis as migrants overflow into the border city. The Texas shooter has been identified. Police are investigating the motivation for the massacre. The mall massacre shooter was uh, named as a 33-year-old. I'm not going to mention his name. He doesn't merit a mention who investigators believe may have been a white supremacist or a neo-Nazi who followed extremist ideologies. The California Reparations Panel suggests suggestion would bring a $500 billion price tag to the state of California. And President Biden and Speaker McCarthy were going to meet in, in person on Tuesday to discuss the debt limit. Top Democrats and Republicans are racing to try to find a politically acceptable way to raise the nation's borrowing limit in the coming weeks. Uh, diving into talks with President Biden has avoided um, during months of impasse. Mr. Biden will host House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other congressional leaders at the White House on Tuesday, the first direct contact in months as officials grapple with the prospect of a first ever U.S. default as soon as June 1st. The House Judiciary Committee, under the leadership of Chairman Jim Jordan, issued subpoenas on Thursday to look into an advertising project that includes the World Economic Forum, which claims to be fighting against harmful online content. Jordan writes that the House Judiciary Committee has sought documents and communications related to how GARM and WFA act to demonize and eliminate disfavored content online, in addition to other information ever since March of this year. 
Radical and progressive uh, fueled protests ignited in New York City after Jordan Neely, a homeless man who was reportedly erratic and hostile before a 24 year old U.S. Marine veteran defended himself and others in the the, uh, passenger vehicle. The protesters also threatened to tear the city down unless the Marine is aggressively prosecuted. Protesters then began to get violent with the police officers, forcing the NYPD to tackle several protesters to the ground and arrest them. Several other protesters could be heard yelling, they're lynching us out here. The law enforcement did their job to keep the safety of people trying to get from one place to another. The death toll from floods in eastern Congo has almost doubled, reaching close to 400 people as of Sunday, according to a local official. The administrator for the worst affected area, uh, the territory of South Kivu province, said more bodies were recovered on Sunday, including many found floating in Lake Kivu. The administrator, Thomas Bakanje, said that the confirmed number of deaths uh, stood at 394, but it was a provisional count since the search was continuing. More than 300 victims had been buried as of Sunday, local groups said. Torrential rains across uh, the territory began on Thursday evening. Rivers broke their banks with flash floods sweeping um, Thursday, uh, sweeping away the majority of buildings in the villages uh, in its wake, in its path. A day after the gilded spectacle of King Charles III's crowning in an ancient religious ceremony, Festivities took a more down-to-earth turn with thousands of picnics and street parties held across the U.K. in his honor. No fancy invite required. His son, Prince William, heir to the throne, said at Sunday's concert that uh, service was at the heart of the magnificent correlation celebrations and that his father's first word upon entering Westminster Abbey were those of service. Migrants waiting at the border, an estimated 700,000, are currently waiting in Mexico, preparing to rush the U.S. southern border as soon as Title 42 ends on Thursday. Joe Biden responded to this impending border rush by sending 1,500 troops to the border. But these troops aren't going to help secure the border. Rather, they're going to help assist immigration officials more rapidly process the anticipated wave of illegal aliens. As Yuma County Board of Supervisor member Jonathan Lines observed, What is uh, transpiring is a mass migration event. Forty percent of the people coming across are immediately expelled and they're flown back to their countries of origin under uh, Title 42. That goes away on Thursday. There's no longer processed out. After holding the post for just over two years, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky tendered her resignation on Friday and will be leaving the agency on the 30th of June. Walensky's announcement came the same day as the World Health Organization officially declared COVID-19 no longer a global emergency. While not as high profile as Dr. Anthony Fauci, under Walensky's watch, the CDC became more beholden to promoting the political narrative of the Biden administration. In an ongoing civil rape trial brought against former President Donald Trump by E. Jean Carroll, a deposition video of Trump answering questions from Carroll's legal team last year was made public on Friday. The former president was repeatedly has repeatedly denied the allegations which he first made in 2019. Leftist billionaire George Soros is partnering with Fortress Investment Group to buy Vice Media for $400 million. Last week, the left media outlet that Back in 2017, was valued at $5.7 billion, announced it was facing bankruptcy. Acquiring Vice will give Soros yet another media outlet to peddle radical political propaganda in support of 
the Democrats. The number of people killed when a man crashed his vehicle into a crowd of pedestrians in Brownsville, Texas, on Sunday is risen to eight, police say, and at least 11 have been injured. The Brownsville Police Department said that uh, eight victims died at the scene. At least 11 others have been transported to area hospitals. Explosive bribery allegations involving Joe Biden and foreign nationals were brought to the Department of Justice as early as 2018, two years before similar allegations against the president were made by the whistleblower now talking to the House Oversight Committee. Bud Cummins, a a former federal prosecutor, first reported the bribery allegations and then New York City, rather to then New York City U.S. Attorney Jeff Berman on October 4th, back in 2018, in an email claiming he had evidence that Joe Biden had exercised influence to protect his son's Ukrainian employer in exchange for payments to Hunter Biden, Devin Archer and Joe Biden. In the email obtained by John Solomon's Just the News, Cummins said that Ukraine's then prosecutor wanted to travel to the United States to meet Berman and could produce two Joe Biden witnesses to corroborate his claims about the Bidens. But Berman never responded to the email. Instead, in a move that Cummins can says seems like retaliation on December 9th of the following year, 2019, in the middle of the impeachment proceedings against President Donald Trump, federal prosecutors secretly obtained data from Cummins' iPhone with a grand jury subpoena to Apple. When he received a notice from Apple last October telling him that his data had been accessed three years earlier, he said he found it perverse that you report an allegation of a a pretty serious crime and they don't investigate it, but they investigate you. Cummins' report was just one of a number of red flags raised by the Department of Justice between 2016 and 2020 about the Biden family influence peddling scheme. On this day in history, 1945, President Harry S. Truman announced on radio the Nazi Germany forces surrendered uh, in World War II and that the flags of freedom would be flying all over Europe. It was VE Day. 1958, Vice President Richard Nixon is shoved, stoned, booed, and spat upon by anti-American protesters in Lima, Peru. 1973, militant American Indians who held the South Dakota hamlet of Wounded Knee for 10 weeks surrender. The 10-week occupation, known as um, as Wounded Knee, began when approximately 200 Oglala Lakota and the followers of the American Indian movement seized and occupied the town of Wounded Knee, South Dakota, on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. The occupation lasted for 71 days. The AIM members, again, the American Indian movement members, demanded a change in trial, tribal uh, leaders, a review of all treaties made by Native peoples, and a U.S. Senate investigation of the treatment of Native Americans. 1978, David Berkowitz pleads guilty in a Brooklyn courtroom to murder, attempted murder, and assault in connection with the Son of Sam shootings. 1982, Dan Rice and Georgine Rose exchange wedding vows. Today, they celebrate their 41st wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary, Dan Rice. 1984, the Soviet Union announces it would boycott the upcoming Summer Olympic Games in Los Angeles. 1987, Gary Hart he dodged uh, by, uh, is dogged rather by questions about his personal life. He withdraws from the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Up next, a conversation with Carrie Holt, co-author of The Other Side of Special. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. 
Mothers of children with special needs experience a wide a wide range of emotions from fear to disappointment, guilt, grief, despair. They have a yearning for relief, but often feel isolated and inadequate as they look at the parenting experiences of others. Well, in the new book, The Other Side of Special, Navigating the Messy, Emotional, Joy-Filled Life of a Special Needs Mom, Special Needs Moms, Amy Brown, Sarah Klein, and Carrie Holt, who will be my guest, help other moms and caregivers know the joy of God's presence, even amid sorrow and grief. Uh, they don't offer cliche solutions or pat answers. They understand the complex nature of parenting special needs children. They face the messy emotions of parenting that... Uh, are never fixed with humility, gratitude, and understanding. We have one of those three moms with us here today. Well, Amy Brown, Sarah Klein, and Carrie Holt are three mothers who have combined experience of over 30 years of raising children with physical, medical, mental, and emotional special needs. They are the hosts of the podcast, Take Heart, Special Moms. Well, Carrie, who joins us today, regularly speaks at conferences, hospitals, churches, and more about special needs mothering. Again, the title of their book, The Other Side of Special, Navigating the Messy, Emotional, Joy-Filled Life of a Special Needs Mom. Carrie Holt, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. I have a friend, I, I just learned, she's expecting, so excited, she just learned that her child has Down syndrome and for her, the the journey has begun. The expectations have been altered. And I'm so grateful for your book because I know it's going to be a, a helpful resource for her as she navigates these early days before she actually holds that child in her arms. Tell us a little bit about um, about your background and about your family. Sure. So I have four children that range in age from 19 to 13. And our third son Um, who is 16 now, we were introduced into the world of special needs parenting through a prenatal diagnosis similar to your friend. He was born with spina bifida and hydrocephalus, which is a lifelong permanently disabling uh, birth defect. And we kind of took a road less traveled when he was about two and a half weeks old, where he went into respiratory failure. We ended up spending over two months in the hospital. And when he was three months old, we brought home this medically fragile baby with all these machines to keep him alive and a feeding pump. And we had nursing care in our home. And so that was kind of our introduction into the world of special needs parenting, my husband and I. What was like, uh, what is life like as a special needs parent? How does this experience change your life? And you've already kind of touched on that, but I, I hope you can kind of fill at that, fill in that uh, that picture. Yeah, so, I mean, honestly, when we first found out, we were just completely devastated. I mean, it was a 20-week ultrasound. We went in, and I just remember feeling like a lot of times we call that day like our D-Day, the diagnosis day. There's just this clear before and after of what we thought life was going to look like and then life completely changing. And it it was devastating, but it was also... It we just really had to rely on our faith. <laughs> um, that I mean, that was a big piece of that. And I just remember thinking, I I don't know how we're going to do this. We had uh, at the time that my son was born, we had three boys, three and a half and under. <laughs> mm. And I mean, normal parenting is hard when you have kids that close together, and then 
put on top of that, running back and forth to the hospital. And he had surgery the day he was born. He had surgery four days later. And then we went back in. We spent a month in the ICU. And it was just really dark. And sometimes, you know, we were facing the possibility of him not making it. And just you learn how to live life one day at a time and sometimes one minute at a time as I would watch the monitors and watch my son's breathing because that was the main issue he had was he wasn't breathing on his own without machines. You mentioned you had other children, very young sons. Um, Your expectations had been one thing. You had an idea of what your life should look like, bringing another son into the world, only to be met with a vastly different reality. You mentioned that you learned to cling to God when that reality didn't line up with your plans and your expectations. How do you do that? And was there a, a season in which you, first of all, just questioned God? Why did you allow this to happen? Why us? How did you navigate that? And what does it mean that you clung to God during this, especially the early days? Sure. So I would say that for me personally, I know this has not been the experience of my co-host Sarah, but I, for me personally, um, I didn't, I did not question my faith in, in those moments, partly because I can, I can tend to be kind of a very black and white person. And so, and I was raised in a Christian home. So I kind of knew, okay, you know, the Bible tells us we're going to experience trials and this is, this is one of those trials. Now, I can tell you, though, that one, one of the things that helped me and has helped me since is learning how to grieve and not stuff down the grief and the sadness and the sorrow and being okay with taking those emotions to God and saying, okay, God, I can't handle this. This is really difficult. We're facing more days in the hospital and we're not even sure if our son's going to make it. And I can remember reading the scriptures in Matthew that talk about don't take thought for tomorrow because tomorrow will take care of itself. And I I remember feeling like I was praying and asking the Lord, what am I going to do? And how are we going to handle this? And who's going to take care of our other boys? And what are these days going to look like? And, and he just, he just said to me, I, I could return tomorrow. I, and you would be worrying for nothing. You need to put it in my hands and I'm going to be with you every step of the way. So that's probably one practical way was me just, I tend to be a long-term planner. And so I wanted to know what is this going to look like in five years and 10 years? What is this, you know, how are we going to handle all of this with our three children? And the Lord said, let's just focus on today. And another thing that I that really helped me too is finding the gratitude, and Amy, Amy calls them gifts, but it was finding the gratitude and keeping a journal. So I kept a daily journal of everything that was going on and then started to look for just the small ways that God was providing. And it was simple things like not paying for parking at the hospital. Our hospital in our town, I live in Ohio, uh, requires parking, you know, every time you leave. And it, it's not a ton of money, but, you know, we were a young family. And, but it was just those kinds of things where I look back and I look at that list and go, wow, God, you were so good and you carried us through so, so much. 
those little things. You were not uh, obviously parenting this um, this disabled son alone. You had your husband who was parenting with you, and then your sons. What impact uh, did this uh, revelation have on your on your family, on your husband who also had expectations before the diagnosis, and your sons who were expecting another brother who would be just like they are? How did that How did that work in the family dynamic? Sure. So I think for my husband, what's interesting is he, he can, he's definitely my, like, he's just real even keel and he just kind of takes life as it comes. And the day we walked out to the car after I saw my um, OBGYN, you know, my baby doctor while I was still pregnant and I'm crying and he looked at me and he said, why not us? Hmm. And I thought, you're crazy. <laughs> and, but he said, Carrie, we have God and we have our faith and we have our church and we have our family. Why not us? Because we have everything we need to walk through this journey. And so as far as our boys, at least at that, in that time, they were pretty much protected by a lot of it, just from their, you know, naivety being young and things like that. I would say through the years, one of the things that I have loved about our family and our and our kids, and we ended up having a daughter after our son with special needs, um, she's three years younger, um, is that they just treat our son Toby like he's a normal kid. You know, they fight with him, they push his wheelchair around. They, they when they were little, they used to ride his power chair places, and you know, we would go do things, and it was it's just always been a normal a normal thing for them, and. You know, I know that they have had some struggles of like, you know, all the focus is on Toby. My son has had 61 surgeries mm-hmm. um, throughout his life. And so we've spent a lot of time in the hospital and, you know, he's medically fragile and things like that. And, you know, it's just, I think one of the biggest things for special needs parents and families is just balancing, uh, you know, your child's kids needs and your marriage and then your other kids if you have other children and learning to say you know what I have to give what I can give I still need to take care of myself and I have to leave the outcome in God's hands just like the boy with the five loaves and two fishes just like him turning water into wine I just have to take my water to him and say okay God this is what you've asked me to be faithful with I'm going to be faithful and you're going to have to make it into something Beautiful, because I can't do it all. Yeah. yeah. We're talking with Carrie Holt. She is the co-author of The Other Side of Special, Navigating the Messy, Emotional, Joy-Filled Life of a Special Needs Mom. We'll continue our conversation in a moment, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Carrie Holt. She is the co-author of The Other Side of Special, Navigating the Messy, Emotional, Joy-Filled Life of the Special Needs Mom. She, along with her two other co-authors, Amy Brown and Sarah Klein, are three mothers who have a combined experience of over 30 years of raising children with physical, medical, mental, and emotional special needs. And they're the hosts of the podcast, Take Heart, Special Moms. Um, Let me uh, ask you uh, about caretaker fatigue, because I can imagine that the time that's required to care for one special needs child, while at the same time raising three other boys, has to be an ominous task. 
talk a bit about fatigue and how you manage just the sheer volume of time and attention required to to take care. Yeah, so it's definitely real. And it's one of the things, you know, when you're in the middle of crisis after crisis, you don't realize the toll that it's taking on your body. And uh, for the last kind of year and a half, we've had a bit of calm in our life. We haven't been in the hospital. And honestly, that is when some of the just the traumas and the it, it was really when I started to realize how fatigued I really was because I realized just there are just, you know, people in my life would be experiencing cancer or different things. And really all I could do was pray for them because I did not have, I, there are times that I have just have not had the capability mm-hmm. to feel like I want to do all the things I want to do and serve the people I want to serve. And so I think in the early days, it meant just saying no to things and, and being okay with that, being okay with saying no to, you know, I can't be, I can't serve at mops at church or I can't do this uh, because my main focus is I want to have a healthy marriage and I want to, you know, I, I don't want to lose that. And I want to, my main ministry is my kids. And so at the same time, it, it is this balance of, and thankfully we have had help because we've had nursing care in our home. And that has helped, but that that brings in a whole nother thing to manage um, on different levels. But it, I, you just have to learn how to say, okay, I'm going to release this to mm-hmm. someone else's, uh, you know, grasp. Whether it's my husband's going to take care of this medical care tonight, and even if he doesn't do it exactly the way I would do it, it's okay. He's still taking care of him, or this neighbor or this friend is going to run our kid to soccer practice while our son's in the hospital. And that's okay. And so you, you, you definitely have to learn that you just, you cannot do it all. And, and that it, it, it is okay to say no. And, and honestly, that just requires, at least for me, it has required just walking with Jesus and saying, what do you want me to handle today? Like, what, what are you asking me because the truth is, I think sometimes we discount the fact that caring for our kids is serving Jesus. Mm-hmm. It, it's serving God and the little tasks and the ways that I can show my kids that I love them and show my son God's love and that he's unconditionally loved and cared for, especially my son with special needs who needs all the care uh, sometimes. That's the best way that I can show God's love to him and show others just that hope and that where our strength is coming from. Well, let me ask you, because you made reference to it, how this kind of life as a special needs mom has impacted your devotional life. I know for many of us, when we are overwhelmed and and the responsibility uh, is all consuming, our devotional life tends to wane. You seem to suggest that without clinging to Jesus and having that strength that you wouldn't be able to do what you do in, in raising your disabled son, as well as the three uh, other sons. Well, I mean, I would be lying if I said, you know, I'm always in the word every day, especially, uh, you know, I can honestly say there were times when he was in the hospital 
where I felt like I couldn't even pray, or it was just one word prayers, because if I opened myself up to the emotion of getting, you know, really into God's word or just feeling all the feelings when I had to make all the decisions and cope with all that stuff, I just couldn't open myself up to all of the emotions of, you know, just that piece of it, because we were just kind of in survival mode, Mm -hmm. making decisions. I had to think clearly, you know, I couldn't have emotions necessarily clouding my judgment. Um, But I will say, I, I think one of the things I've learned along the way is, again, it's just those small little things we can do. It's opening, uh, you know, opening your eyes in the morning and say, Lord, be with me today. Your mercies are new every morning. Show me, uh, focus on one scripture. It's also been learning just prayers of release of saying, God, these are all the things that I'm worried about today. These are all the things I'm caring for. And it might not even be things that are going wrong. It's just the stuff you have to take care of, right? Mm-hmm. As a mom. Yeah. And, but Lord, I release this to you because I know it's yours. And I think it's just, um, and then when there've been times when it's calmer, then I can, you know, spend some time in heavy Bible study or, you know, do the different things that I've done or, you know, my husband, and I have loved life groups or things at church. And, um, so I think it looks differently, honestly, just where you're at. But I think the key is just faithfulness and consistency and not discounting all the little drops of truth that you're pouring into, whether it's listening to a podcast or listening to the Bible on the app or a radio show or something that can continually feed your soul. That's the key is continually feeding your soul. I know for um, for mothers who are not uh, parenting disabled children, for other family and friends um, uh, who are not uh, raising special needs children, how do you support your um, your family? How do you support your friends who are in this very um, challenging season of life? What's the best way to come alongside and uh, offer genuine support and help? So I think one of the things that it's important to understand is that parents who have children with special needs are, they have chronic grief. So we are always living in a grieving cycle and it doesn't necessarily go away. And especially if the caregiving situation is going to be for the duration of the child's life. I, I think that is really, it was very key for me to grasp as as a mom and I, and I am constantly sharing and teaching about this to family and friends and other people, because there are moments along the journey where you think, Oh, they should just get over that. Well, but my son is 16 now and he's not getting his driver's license. Like everybody else's Mm. kids are. He's paralyzed from the waist down. He doesn't have, he could drive an adaptive car, but he doesn't have those capabilities at this point yet. And he may never. And so I'm grieving watching all of these things happen. So I think that's one thing is just understanding that we don't just get past it. It just looks differently throughout the journey. And then secondly, I think it's just being willing to step in and see and see us to step in uh, to to help and to be willing to get down and know our kids. And, and know our child with special needs and see them as a person and not just a disability label. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's really key. And also being willing to say, you know what, 
I, I'm not just going to say, how can I help you? Or just let me know if you need help. Because honestly, we're not going to ask unless we're really desperate for the most part. It's very hard for us to ask because in some ways we're in a, a constant state of needing, right? Of, of bringing in help or whatever that might be. Um, but to say, hey, I went into the grocery store this week and I know you have had a rough week. Can I pick something up for you? Or I'm going to bring you a meal next week. What day works? Mm, Just yeah, yeah. Giving, yeah, giving kind of like that either or choice. Like yeah. you can pick Tuesday or Thursday. What I'm going to do this. What, what do you want me to do? Be specific. We need to take a break here at the top of the hour, but we will continue this conversation. Again, we're talking with the co-author of a very important book, The Other Side of Special. Uh, my guest, Carrie Holt, will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Talking with Carrie Holt, she is the co-author of The Other Side of Special, Navigating the Messy, Emotional, Joy-Filled Life of a Special Needs Mom. Her co-authors, Amy Brown and Sarah Klein, are three mothers who have a combined experience of over 30 years of raising children with physical, medical, mental, and emotional special needs. And they're the hosts of the podcast, Take Heart, Special Moms. Again, the title of the book, The Other Side of Special. Just before the break, we were talking about how family and friends uh, can can help and support uh, you in your efforts to raise your, your son, your special needs son. Uh, but you also write about ways the church unknowingly tells special needs families that they're unwelcome. It's not intentional, but it is... Um, it is present. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it may be surprising to to some of us. Yeah, so I think one of the ways that this happens is just when there's a lack of awareness, um, kind of from the leadership down of and one of the statistics that we looked up, we actually did a podcast on this, and the the community of families that have children with disabilities and the disabled community can actually be considered an unreached people group. Mm-hmm. Just the percentages of them that are in church um, is, is staggering. It's just staggeringly low. And I think part of that is because accessibility, um, just physical accessibility, uh, our churches don't fall under the same rules. Uh, usually with ADA laws and compliance and things like that. And so sometimes I think it's just this lack of like, we, we don't know, we're afraid. I think it's fear. We're afraid uh, of what it's going to ask, what it might require of us financially or from a volunteer standpoint. And, and so there's just not a mentality of let's serve these families. They need to be served. They need help. And, and we want to help them. And so, and then I think another thing too is I, sometimes it's just segmented to one section of the church. Like a church might have a special needs ministry and it's going really well, but it's only, it, the entire staff really isn't on board. They're not educated. They're not, um, advocating or even understanding where these families are coming from and how much they need the gospel, just like uh, other people Mm -hmm. in the church and they need help and support. And for instance, um, we're familiar with a ministry that's here local to where I live, where uh, she provides video instruction for all of the children's leaders, not just the leaders who are working maybe as a buddy or that type of thing, but 
it, it's actually equipping every person who's volunteering in the children's ministry about if you have a child that comes in and, uh, you know, Amy, my co-host, her kids have the behavioral disabilities and they're invisible sometimes because they have adoption trauma and they have attachment issues. And maybe that kid isn't acting that way just because they're being naughty. They have real things that have happened to them in their life. And, and, but this is a strategy of how you can help them. And there's trainings and things out there. And I think the other part two of this is just not using the families who are in your church as resources. Uh, Sarah shares a story of how, and I love this, uh, where she lives in her church, they had a day where they had all the pastors and all the staff navigate the building in wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, okay, we're going to have an event, you know, on the lawn. Well, how do you get to the restroom? How do you get through the line to get food? How do you even open the doors to the church if there's not a button because they're so heavy? And I, it's just things like that where I think it's really important for staff to say, you know what, we need to go to these families and ask them, what do they need? And they'll tell you. And we, and for the most part, we understand you can't do it all. Like we, we totally get that. But I think when we, when they understand, families like ours understand that we're seen and that you want us there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really important. Oh, that's so, so good. Again, we're talking about the book, The Other Side of Special, which is a great resource for those who are special needs moms and those of us who want to care for them and love them and their families uh, well. You offer in the book practical wisdom on complex medical needs, invisible uh, disabilities, adoption, terminal and rare diagnosis, and more. Talk a little bit about some of the medical needs and invisible disabilities that we might just overlook out of ignorance, but want desperately to be aware of so that we can reflect the heart of Christ toward everyone um, that that's in our neighborhood or in our church or in our family. Yeah, so one of the things, especially with the invisible disabilities, is, is again, going back to that uh, kids who, so as a church, as the church, the body of Christ in general, we're always encouraging families to adopt, right? And and we're called to adopt, and we're called to minister to the widows and orphans. And then when families bring children in and they're dealing with trauma, and there's been so much research that's come out in recent years, and they don't attach to their main caregiver because they're not able to, their brain doesn't allow them to, and then they're misbehaving, and they might even be stealing or, or doing different types of behavior then we shun them and turn them away and think it's bad parenting. And I think it's really important. Um, and Amy just kind of shares her experiences with mm-hmm. that in the book and the emotions that she went through and how much shame and judgment there is there. Um, and, and just how important it is uh, to just for people to understand that just because a child doesn't look like, they need accommodations and understanding and empathy. They they probably do. And it's always better to ask questions instead of making assumptions. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Again, the other side of special is the title of the book we're talking about. And as I mentioned, uh, she and her two co-authors are also the hosts of a podcast, Take Heart Special Moms. 
I know loneliness is an issue that you deal with. We're going to take a break here in a moment. But when we come back, I'd like to talk a bit about uh, loneliness, how you and your co-authors have dealt with it that might also help others who are, are listening in the same or similar situation. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. We're talking about the book, The Other Side of Special, Navigating the Messy, Emotional, Joy-Filled Life of a Special Needs Mom. Founders of Take Heart Special Moms, these three uh, authors, they share a wide range of experiences. Amy began her journey through adoption, hidden disabilities, and mental health issues. Carrie's son was permanently diagnosed, or I should say prenatally diagnosed, with a permanently disabling condition and became medically fragile after birth. Based over 60 surgeries throughout his lifetime so far. Sarah's son received a terminal diagnosis at age nine, and she and her family members are determined not to let the diagnosis define the quality of their lives. And while the experiences of special needs uh, moms uh, and those who support them will differ, uh, this book will help readers take just one step toward growing in faith, hope, joy, and connection. And as I mentioned, these uh, three are also the hosts of a podcast I would highly recommend um, take heart, special moms. Uh, just before the break, I asked you about loneliness, and um, it's a, a real big factor for special needs mom. What encouragement can you offer to mothers experiencing loneliness in, under these circumstances? Yeah, so loneliness is just, it, it can be, I think part of the reason why loneliness is so difficult is because you feel that, it can be isolating because all of a sudden you feel like you're, you're, you're in the same group of other moms who are having babies or raising kids. And then you're in a different category. You have a different label. And I remember fighting it and saying, I don't want to have that title. I don't want to have that identity. And so you can tend to draw away from people. Mm -hmm. So, but one of the ways that, we talk about in the book and that Sarah and Amy and I have experienced is I think it's really important to, I think oftentimes when we're lonely, we try to look around and find someone else who looks like us, acts like us, thinks like us. And in reality, you know, that that person really isn't out there. And I think what's important is to find the common ground. And that's one of the reasons why we wrote the book is because the three of us met only just about three years ago through a writing group. And as we were sharing our stories and talking, we realized that the things we had in common were the emotions and uh, having to make accommodations and having to advocate. So the, even though our child's diagnoses are not the same, the things we're going through, the feelings that we're feeling, the struggles, um, sometimes the guilt and the shame and all that kind of stuff that, that we're experiencing is common. So I think it's really important to find um, common ground. I think uh, the first thing to do is to pray for a friend. I, I know mm-hmm. that sounds very simple and sometimes trite, but I, I've used it in my life and, and God has provided different people along the way. And sometimes, you know, I have met people at the zoo uh, I just out in the community. And I think it's sometimes just our posture of being approachable for people to come talk to us and ask us questions and, uh, you know, say, Hey, I, I noticed your son is in a wheelchair. Well, I have, I have a child at home too with a wheelchair. Can we talk? Let's, let's have a conversation because 
I know that you probably have some idea of what I'm, what I'm going through. Um, and, and to, just to keep searching for that community. And I also want to encourage whoever's listening is sometimes you have to create that community. And I know that's really hard when you're a caregiver and parenting and everything, but maybe find somebody at church. Uh, sometimes children's hospitals have social workers that can help you connect with other parents and, and build a community, whether it's online or in person. Thankfully, there are some good things that have come out of social communities. I met one of my closest friends through a Yahoo group like 15 years ago, and this is in a different state, and it's just been a beautiful friendship that we've developed. So that's an important element to have some community. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, and our time is short, but a little bit about advocacy and what it means to adv- advocate for a child with special needs? Yeah, so real quick, um, I think um, when you're advocating for your child, I always think of speaking truth and love. Um, it's very important for us to um, have wisdom and know, you know, not every person deserves your time. If somebody's not public and they're making comments about your kids, they don't, they don't deserve you to, you know, they don't deserve your time for you to go and explain and, and all that kind of stuff. Just, just walk away and talk to your child and reaffirm them and things like that. If you're in a medical situation or a school situation, I think it's important to know what you need, be clear, and but also speak the truth and love. When you share a lot of grace and you also try to understand the shoes they're coming from, um, I think usually uh, compromise and collaboration and community can happen. Oh, that's so good. I want to ask um, for our audience sake, how they can connect with you. We mentioned the podcast and also get the book, The Other Side of Special for themselves as special needs parents or for uh, those who desire to be a better support for friend of and understand those um, who do have special needs children. Sure. So you can find us at our website, which is TakeHeartSpecialMoms.com. We have a book page on there. The book's found at Amazon. It's pre-ordered right now. It's coming out May 9th. And all of our individual websites are linked through the Take Our Special Moms website. Well, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and help us to have a better understanding and uh, to provide a resource for special needs moms and dads uh, in our listening audience. Carrie, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Georgine. Appreciate it. Again, Carrie Holt is the co-author along with her two friends, The Other Side of Special, Navigating the Messy, Emotional, Joy-Filled Life of a special needs mom, the book uh, out in May, but they are doing pre-orders. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, after more than nine years of captivity, nine years, two Chibok schoolgirls have been rescued, according to a Nigerian military official. The two girls, Hawa and Esther, Now, both 26 were among the 276 girls abducted by Boho Haram back in April of 2014. The terrorist group had forced the two into marriage with its fighters. Major General Ibrahim Ali, leader of the Nigerian military operation combating the country's northeastern insurgency, has told reporters that Nigerian soldiers rescued the two women and reunited them with their families. Uh, One who was eight months pregnant... Uh, when she was rescued, told the Daily Trust she gave birth to a healthy baby boy in April of this year. And while in captivity, she and uh, the other young woman were each forced into marriage with th- 
three different extremists as their husbands were killed in clashes with the military. The majority of the rescued girls and their families have shared accounts of them being forced into marriages and losing hope of ever escaping their captors. Ali and Mark Ali said that Marcus was forced to marry a man from Garba, also known as Garis, a Boko Haram fighter who was killed during a troops offensive operation on terrorists enclaves. She was later married off to another insurgent, Abba, in the uh, Yukubu terrorist enclaves uh, and then a third. And, of course, bore a child from this one. Of the Chaibok schoolgirls who were abducted in 2014, nearly 100 remain missing, according to The Guardian. Chaibok is the local government area of Borno State. In Manipur, a state in northeastern India, violence has erupted, claiming the lives of 58 individuals, many of whom were Christians, and resulting in the destruction or burning of at least 50 churches. The local Christian community has accused the Hindu nationalist government of supporting the attacks. Beginning last Wednesday, Wednesday, the violence was reported in several areas in the state, but mostly in the um, in two particular areas. The Christian victims have identified the predominantly Hindu um, Maitai uh, ethnic group as the attackers. This ethnic group has experienced longstanding tension with Christians who are mostly from tribal communities over land ownership and affirmative action policies. At least 58 people have died in the ongoing violence, according to the Indian media outlet Scroll. It's not, um, it's not known how many of these, uh, those killed were Christians, but reports coming from the area suggest the majority of them, in fact, uh, could have been. As the suspension of, the, of telecommunication services in the area continues, determining the full scope of the damage suffered by the Christian community remains challenging. Nonetheless, after military personnel were sent to the impacted regions and police received uh, shoot-at-sight orders on May 4th, the intensity and frequency of the attacks diminished by late evening. I mention it because just this, um, this weekend, uh, most of us enjoyed time fellowship, fellowshipping with fellow believers in church. On Saturday evening, there were two opportunities for a hymn sing, a, a night of worship with the singing Christmas tree choir. And it was such a blessing to sit together in this beautiful sanctuary uh, and to sing the great hymns and songs of the faith over the decades and to do so with freedom, uh, to lift our voices, to lift our hands with um, reckless abandon, if you will. And I'm reminded of persecuted believers all over the world. Now, we are facing challenge. We're facing pushback. Some people are losing opportunity. They're losing their jobs. Um, But we're not facing what much of the the rest of the world is facing because of their Christian faith. And I wanted to take the opportunity to remind all of us, myself included, to remember those who suffer for the sake of the gospel, to pray for them as if we ourselves are being persecuted Um, You can go to organizations like Open Doors or um, the Persecuted uh, Believers Organizations, Voice of the Martyrs, that can help you to understand and know some of their stories that can inform your prayers. But in the absence of any details, just know, as Jesus said, in this world, you will know tribulation. But I have overcome the world. We need to pray for those brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering for faithfully serving and trusting uh, in Jesus as if we ourselves were facing similar challenge. And who knows what the future may be for us in this country. And we would certainly like to hope 
that others are praying for us. When I've traveled to the underground church, to the persecuted church all around the world in years past, um, I was struck by how faithfully they prayed for us and that the expectation was because they believed if we were Bible believing followers of Jesus, that we took the scripture seriously. They thanked us without asking for praying for them because the expectation was that we are members of the same body. So we know you're praying for us in the same way that we're praying for you. So by way of reminder, um, India is one place where this is happening, but there are many, many others. Let's remember our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ in prayer. Well, we are just about out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for both producing and engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. And just one last word. Happy anniversary, Dan Rice. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.